Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to finish Hebrews. Uh, we started finishing Hebrews last week, and then, of course, I ran out of time. But I think we've got just uh, five verses or six verses, chapter 13, verse 20 through 25. Uh, and next week, we will start the book of James, which is a, a good book because uh, for, to fit this because it's at the same same time as this is being written, probably, or the people that are receiving this, one of their leaders would be James, uh, who is probably going to be writing, though, a little bit earlier in church history. We'll talk about that when we get to the book of James next week. But anyway, uh, chapter 13, uh, we'll begin in verse uh, 17, as we covered these verses last week. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account Obey them so that their work may be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. This restoration or visiting them is going to be come up here at the, in the next few verses again, I'm mentioning Timothy. <clears throat> now, our, our new verses for today, uh, verses 20 through 21 are a, kind of like a closing benediction. Uh, in fact, I've read this, like it, I've used this as a closing at a funeral or graveside service many times. Uh, and then verse 22, he goes on and kind of closes the letter down more on a personal note, verses 22, 23, and 24. And then at verse 25, he just hands them over to the grace of God, which is a great way of after you've uh, done all you can of all your instruction, of all your guiding, of teaching, is okay, I now hand you over to the grace of God. It's now God's work in you. And that would be uh, the Spirit of God, the new life that He's given you, the, the fellowship you've got with, with other believers, the instruction that He's got, and the Spirit of God leading and guiding you. That is now, he, it's not His responsibility. He's done His job. He's handing Him over at the end of this last verse. So now, the, the benediction is, is uh, I would say, very rich, has a lot of details in it. And it, it is, in a sense, capturing everything in the book and condensing it uh, into one uh, little benediction. And so I'll explain some of these things as we go through. Some of them are real obvious. Now, he closes, begins closing here in verse 20. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Then verse 22, Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all the leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Uh, now, on the notes on page two, uh, we covered page one last week. On page two, starting at the top, uh, there's a lot of commas, I can say that, phases in this, phrases in this benediction. But he says, now may the God of peace. And so it begins here by saying, the God of peace... Uh, and we'll try to go through some verses on this and details. But basically, the God of peace is, God is a God of wrath, Romans 1. His wrath is being revealed, is being poured out. But because of Jesus Christ, he is now the God of peace for those who come to him through Jesus Christ. And that's, that's why throughout this verse, 
You're going to hear about the blood of the covenant. You're going to hear about Jesus Christ. And in the end, all glory be to Jesus Christ forever and ever because this God of peace only exists because the wrath has been removed by Jesus Christ. Now, we as Christians, we as Western people, even as atheists, secular humanists, just people in general, they always think of God as you know, kind, gracious. If there is a God, he would be good. Uh, but the God of the Bible is a God of wrath because he is, and I'm getting I'm too far into teaching this already. I want to back this up. But he, he is a God of wrath because he is holy. He is just. And the world has gone into sin. If it be the God of this age, which is Satan, or if it be people that have fallen into sin, we are all in a place of judgment and his wrath is being poured out in the world today and that is the way if if we stopped now or before jesus came if we stopped short of christ coming that would that's how it would end it'd just end in uh, annihilation uh, if you want to say annihilation maybe eternal damnation would be a better way of saying it but because of jesus christ this wrath has been removed because sin has been atoned for the holy and just god have been has been satisfied his wrath is appeased or propitiated he is now a God of peace. He's now, you can now come to him without fear, without uh, concern of, again, not on your own merit, but through Jesus Christ. So it begins, now may the God of peace, and then we got these phrase, phases, he phrases, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, and here's what it the God of peace, equip Equip you with everything good uh, so that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing to him. So basically what that says is may the God of peace equip you to do good, to do his will, to do what is pleasing in his sight, again, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So those phrases such as uh, in chapter 13, verse 20, now be the God of peace who brought again the dead from, uh, brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's describing the God. He brought Jesus back from the dead. Uh, And then the great shepherd of the sheep, that's describing Jesus who was brought back from the dead. And by the blood of the eternal covenant, all that was done by because of the blood of the eternal covenant we've got the new covenant and the idea there and again you got to decide the blood of the eternal covenant is that in a sense looking eternally back and eternally future yeah that'd be correct i suppose it was written from the foundation of the earth but really the concept there of the eternal covenant i think in the context of the book is the new covenant is replacing the old covenant the old covenant was temporary and passing away this new covenant now that it's come it is the eternal covenant. So again, I think you can look back and say it was written from the foundation of the earth, but in this tech context of this book, now that this has come, this is the final covenant. This is eternal. It's not passing away. It's not going to be replaced. So all these things is the God of peace who brought back from the dead Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, and by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he now equip you with everything for doing uh, good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever all this is done because of is possible because of jesus 
Jesus makes all this, that God can equip you, me, for doing good, for doing his will, to doing what pleases him, is because of Jesus. And because Jesus is the reason we can have access to all this, uh, to him be glory forever and ever. So we've got the eternal covenant, which is accomplished by Jesus, which allows God to be a God of peace. And then we've got Jesus, who now will equip us for all of these things, to him be the glory forever and ever. So you've got an eternal covenant, you've got eternal glory, you've got the hinge Jesus, you've got the hinge Jesus. God is now the God of peace, he's your God of peace, and he is equipping you so that you may completely walk in his ways and be part of his plan. And that is a tremendous change from being a God of wrath, pouring out his wrath, and you're facing eternal damnation. You're now not just forgiven, but you're in line with him. You're being equipped by him. You're being empowered by him to do his will. What you're doing is pleasing to him, and he's giving you everything good to accomplish these things. But the hinge factor is Jesus, and the result is an eternal covenant, and an eternal covenant for us, and eternal glory for Jesus Christ, because both Jesus and the work that Jesus did in us is God's plan. So that's the benediction. If you can kind of see that, it's just it's all you know as you read this just as you're doing your devotions or you're just reading a bible verse just rambling statements about you know may the god of peace who brought back from the dead the lord jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever amen uh, you know blah 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 but when you break it down and stack those legos together it's like holy smokes this is a great great well it's a great benediction. It's a great foundation, uh, and there's some great truth in that. So with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and add some more details to that. Uh, page 2.1 at the bottom. This appears to be an established and accepted formula. Uh, so this may be something that he just wrote there in this letter, or it may be actually what we see right here, a formula that has been condensed as an early church statement to capture these. I mean, you can see it's fairly advanced. When you talk about theology, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's got some thought put into it. And it's got some verbiage or vocabulary, I should say, that has a backing. I mean, you can use this word, but this word, when you look at it, it's got this big definition behind it. It's like theological terms. You, you have a term, it's just one word, but it's got volumes of explanation on what that term means and what it in, encompasses. And so this may be something that the early church had, because again, it's 63 AD, potentially, uh, and, and you know, Paul's ministry has, is in the final days. Peter has, you know, he's come to the end of his life. James is at the end of his life, so just Peter, James, uh, John, uh, all, Paul, they've all come to a place where these things have been developed and there's been plenty of, well, there's been 30 years to put this uh, formula together. So it may be just off the cuff, the writer's words, but because of the way it's put together, and that's what I have right here, point one, this appears to be an established and accepted formula for it has an invocation. Now may the God of peace. It has a basis of the petition who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. The main petition fit you to do his will and everything good that's that's what we're trying to do may the god of peace fit you to do his will and a secondary petition as he brings to pass in us whatever is pleasing in him so those are the things that we had written down here the good and the pleasing 
So they got two petitions, the main and the secondary, and then you've got a mediator by which this is given through Jesus Christ, and then the doxology, to him be glory forever and ever, and we would assume that would be Jesus Christ, but again, it could go back to the God of peace who did all these things. Obviously, they're the Trinity, so it would go to both. And then the closing comment, amen, or so be it, or there's an agreement. Uh, so that would put it in that form of an, an established benediction. Here, uh, point two, here we see the blessing based on in the content of this book. Uh, the, the first thing I had said before, the God of peace, we write this back up here again. God of peace. And I just want to give you some, you know, scripture. You're, you're familiar with these scriptures, but I do want to point them out. Uh, Romans 1, 18 through 19, you know this. It's on page 3 at the top. God is holy and just, and his wrath is being poured out. This is the condition, this is the condition we enter the world. Romans chapter 1, you know, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3, but it's based on what's established in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. <clears throat> and so, in that statement right there, God is revealing himself. He's revealing truth to mankind. Now, man has one of two responses. He can embrace this truth and come to God and face his wickedness, face his sin, and seek some kind of redemption. Or man can take this and suppress it. We'll draw an arrow this way and suppress it. He's going to block it out, and he's going to go over here into another arena where he's going to, in a sense, deny this. You're either going to, when God reveals himself, you either face the fact that God is angry with sin and you need to do something about it. You can't earn it but God is going to provide you an answer. Or you run from it, you hide from it, and establish your own whatever, and now you're suppressing the truth. This is going to get the wrath of God. So God reveals his truth, hoping man will come to it and realize who he is, or that man will, not that he's hoping to it, but man will reject it and face the wrath of God. Uh, this is the case of, well, let's go to John chapter 3. Uh, again, I'm reading in the NIV. The notes are in the English Standard Version. Again, this is so basic, but yet at the same time, it's, it sums this concept up in these words in John chapter 3, verse 16, and you know how it begins. Uh, Jesus talking to Nicodemus in the evening. Nicodemus has come to him, a Pharisee, asking some questions, and Jesus says, you must be born again. And in chapter 3, verse 16, the, the famous verse, just like God is the God of wrath, he is also the God that loves the world, and he's going to do something about it right here, reveal truth to man. Because he loves the world, he doesn't just have wrath, he's going to reveal this truth. Revealing this truth would be an act of love. Uh, and man now can respond to that. If he doesn't, he remains, well, you can see this right here. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And that would be a form of revealing truth. He gave his son. We can talk more about what that means. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that's right here. Man responds, you know, believes in him. Again, be careful that we're going to see this in the book of James. 
it's not just believe. Yes, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus was a, a true historical character. Uh, yeah, but, but the, James says, so do the demons, and yet they shudder. I mean, they, they have faith. Satan has faith in the sense that he knows there's a God, and yet it, it's worthless because he is not, in a sense, come to that, embrace it. So this belief is more than just looking at the truth, saying, yes, I, I know that's true, because the entire spiritual world, you see Jesus in the book of Mark, when, when he comes into a synagogue, the demons, begin, they recognize him. They, they know who he is. They're not just like, well, I don't believe he exists. He's like, that's him. That is him. I know him. I've seen him many times. It's like they know exactly who he is, but it does them no good. So that idea of belief, and again, I'm not telling you anything new, but it's make that word is a little bit richer than just, mm, yeah, I, I believe in God. <laughs> you know, okay, right, but have you come to this truth? Or are you going to remain down here and suppress this truth? Uh, anyway, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You shall not perish but have eternal life. You've got to be going this direction, coming to this truth. Watch this now, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. I mean, right there in that very benediction we're reading, all the things that we have the, the blood of the covenant, the, the things that God is doing in your life is because of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to separate us from God. He didn't come to condemn us. He came, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The reason Jesus came was to do this right here, draw man to himself so he may reveal God to them and bring salvation. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You're delivered. You will not face the wrath. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already meaning because you reject jesus doesn't mean now you get condemned it means you remain condemned you are already here but if you receive jesus you can move back towards god you can move back to the god of peace through jesus if you reject jesus well it says whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of god's one and only son this is the verdict. I mean, the decision. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So when the truth comes, the men were in deception. This truth was the light that revealed their deception. They didn't love it because it revealed their darkness, so they would be more comfortable just staying in darkness, which is self-explanatory. But men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. It matched their nature. Everyone who, who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that he may be, he may be seen plainly, excuse me, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. And so it, if, if you remain in the darkness you still have the sin and you're going to be responsible for those sins if you come to the light it's going to be revealed your sin but that sin is going to be cleansed by the blood of jesus christ and you now have a relationship with the god of peace and so we also have these verses on page three of the notes first thessalonians five twenty three. with that in mind uh, paul's closing down both first thessalonians and romans with this very concept this god of peace so, I mean, this is at the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And so God, Paul's closing the book, this God who is the God of peace, now that you've come to this God of peace, what he's going to do is he's going to begin to sanctify you 
through and through, over and over. You're being taken out of darkness into the light, and that's going to be a process that you're going to continue to go through over and over repeatedly, especially in phase two of your salvation, which we are living in right now. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, there's your spirit, soul, and body, the three phases of salvation, if you want to read that into that. The whole spirit, that's the first phase of salvation where you come to the light. Uh, your soul being renewed while you're living here in the light, being sanctified day by day, continually growing deeper in Christ. And finally, uh, your body, which is going to be the salvation of your physical body, the resurrection, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which reveals, talking about when Jesus Christ comes from heaven, that this process, you will not be overwhelmed and sent back into darkness, but you'll be just transformed right into his kingdom, or being received as blameless, because the blood of Christ has been working on you from the first phase of salvation throughout your life. The word of God, the spirit of God, the blood of Christ, as John writes, is continually cleansing you. You're growing closer and closer. So when he reveals, you'll just go right into his presence as you continue the process of salvation, or in that case, glorification. Uh, so this is going once you enter this, I think it's just a matter of just going closer and closer and closer to God as the process of salvation continues to grow. We're over here, you, you know, you're separated. Again, Paul says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through. Notice, it's the same God. He's the God of wrath. He's the God that is just and is, is punishing the sin. But in this case, because of Jesus Christ, he's the God of peace. He's still the God of wrath, but in your case, he's the God of peace. In Romans 15, 33, the God of peace be with you all, amen. And so it's just a generic term, God of peace, well, right, understand, that's just not a generic term. That means the God of peace can only be the God of peace because someone has responded to Jesus Christ because that God of peace is also the God of wrath and justice that is bringing wrath to the earth, and he's waiting for that day of wrath. But because he can, he can be addressed as the God of peace, this is a huge statement. You've, tr- you've been transferred from the darkness into the light, and you can see that he's a God of peace. Now, he's a God of peace to you and to the members of the church, but outside of salvation, uh, that wrath remains. Okay, so it says, uh, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus Christ, that goes on to that next uh, phrase, uh, resurrected Lord is the new covenant. Uh, again, this whole, cha- whole book is about the new covenant, the comparison between the old, the old covenant that is passing away, and the new covenant, the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, which is eternal. It will never pass away. It's going to be, uh, there's not going to be another prophet that's going to come. There's not going to be another revelation that comes. This is new, new covenant is what Moses said was coming, what the prophets said was coming, what John the Baptist indicated was coming, what Jesus talked about, what Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. He established it, and the, here we are. So the resurrection, Lord, is the new covenant. The blood of the covenant uh, is the word and. If you look up in the Greek, if you want to take time to try and read through the the Greek on page 2, I'll just read the English. Uh, May now God of peace, having brought out from the dead the shepherd of the sheep, uh, great by the blood of the covenant. See that word great? Then by the blood of the covenant. The word is en, E-N in the 
epsilon nu in the, in the Greek, en transliterated, in, it can be the word by, again, this is not necessarily important, but it's, I'm going to point it out, uh, the blood of the covenant in can be translated with or by, by would be the instrumental, as in through or as the result of his sacrifice death, these things result from the blood of Christ. Jesus brought back from the dead. The new covenant is in effect because of the blood of Christ, and God equips it. Because Jesus, by or in, in the Greek, by or through, or it's the instrument of cause, because Jesus did this, then these things will take place. One, he will be resurrected. He will be brought back. He, he paid for the sins, and his work is done. He will be brought back from the dead. Not only will he be brought back from the dead, the new covenant is in effect. The new covenant, Jesus died, shed his blood. Jesus even said himself, this is the blood of the new covenant. I shed my blood, the new covenant takes effect. And because the new covenant has taken effect, Jesus Christ is going to be resurrected. His work is finished. He's going to be resurrected. And because of the new covenant, God equips and works in us for his will. So this is a word I'll just write, equip. Uh, that is, again, the ideal of, of preparing. I'm going to look at that word here in Ephesians 4, verse 12 here in just a minute. We're very familiar with that. But it's the same idea. Because of the blood of, of, of the covenant, because of the blood, Jesus is resurrected. The new covenant is put into effect. And we are now in a position not just to be saved. Oh, good. We don't go to hell. It's like, no, you're now being equipped and prepared to engage and embrace and participate in this process that God is doing uh, in history, which includes salvation and the renewal of all things. Uh, we'll look at that word uh, uh, equipped here in just a moment. So the blood of the covenant is, I think, instrumental, as in through or as a result of. Uh, Jesus uh, is the leader, the pioneer, the shepherd of the sheep. Now we begin to describe, you know, God of peace, who through the blood of the covenant brought back from the dead the shepherd uh, jesus the the shepherd of the sheep uh and this is very typical uh i'm going to read this again here in the english standard version page two at the top now may the god of peace who brought again from the dead our lord jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant so the great shepherd of the sheep this goes off into a Oh, why this this can be we can we can stay simple we can stay simple with this he is the shepherd uh the shepherd of the sheep um the first thing is we've got in hebrews 2 10 it says way back in the beginning of the book of hebrews in bringing many sons and daughters to glory that'd be us bringing us to god's presence it was fitting that god the god of peace for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So there we've got the word pioneer in chapter 2. Pioneer. When we go back and look at that word, it can also, it means uh, the, the trailblazer. It means the founder. It's the one that has gone first. He's gone before us, and because he's gone, we can follow him. He, in a sense, is the shepherd. That's our first indication. In chapter 12, in the same book, it's brought up again. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. So there he is, the author, the perfecter. 
He's gone before he's the, we just follow this right here. He's the shepherd. Now we actually take all these and call him the great shepherd of the sheep. So he is leading, and obviously the sheep is those who believed in him. He's going to lead them. He's going to equip them with everything that they need. Uh, but I want to take a moment just to kind of develop this because it, it, it may be interesting. It, it explodes in John chapter 10 where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Uh, uh, I've got it written down there, point four, at the bottom of page three, 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4. Peter, and he's, as he's closing down his first letter, calls the leaders of the church the shepherd of the flock, meaning you are going to be the leaders, you're the shepherds that are leading these people, but they're serving the great shepherd. So there is the great shepherd, and then he's appointed shepherds under him to lead the people in God's will. That's what Peter's addressing, chapter 5, verse 2. He tells them, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. He's telling them, you continue to shepherd them, lead them. And then he says, when the chief shepherd appears, again, just like when Jesus returns, we have his appearing. When the chief shepherd appears or returns, you will receive the unfading crown of glory for having been a shepherd at this time in history, leading the sheep for the great shepherd. So we have that concept. Um, in Mark chapter 14, verse 27, um, Jesus talking to his disciples towards the end of his ministry that last week, he says, chapter 14, verse 27 of Mark, and Jesus said to them, you will fall away, for it is written. He tells his disciples, uh, they're vowing to be faithful, they'll never ta be taken away, Peter's willing to die with him. Uh, Jesus says, okay, yes, thank you very much, but it is written that you won't because it is written i will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered it is written that the great that i the sheep the shepherd of the sheep will be struck and when i'm struck you're all going to get lost you're going to be completely confused yeah but no we won't we, we're with you all the way you can't beat this it is written that i'm going to be struck and you're going to be confused so get ready and so that comes out of, that's a direct quote. Mark is quoting directly from uh, Zechariah chapter 13. And I want to go now, or chapter 14, but I want to go to Zechariah chapter 13. We're heading here on Tuesday nights sometime in the next two years. Chapter 13. And we have this right here. And this is, this is, this is more than we need to do here today. Uh, but I, I want to show you that this ideal of shepherd is it goes back into the old testament it has eschatological re repercussions uh jesus picked up on it john, we'll go to john chapter 10 but in zechariah 13 we're going to be talking here about two shepherds uh there's going to be the good shepherd or the faithful shepherd and then there's going to be the fake the false shepherd uh the unfaithful shepherd and you'll you'll see this described this uh, uh, just before we get again you got to read this and think through it yourself but this right here this false shepherd is going to be the antichrist this is going to be the one that jesus you reject me when i come in my father's name and he lists seven things that testify about him starting with john the baptist 
Moses' prophecy, the prophets, uh, God's word from heaven, his voice spoke from heaven, the miracles that Jesus, he says, I come in my, in my Father's authority. There's several reasons to embrace Jesus as the Son of God, starting with, uh, again, John the Baptist, Moses saying he's coming, the prophecies, the works. But Jesus, you won't receive me, but you will accept one who comes in his own name. There's going to be someone that's going to come and say, I am him. I am the Messiah. I am the, what, however it's going to appear in history. If you want to say the Messiah, the Christ, uh, the leader that's sent by God, that's going to you know, save the world. However it's going to come across in the, in the cultures and the politics of that time, he's going to come with no authority just by saying, I'm him. And they're going to say, you're exactly what we want, and everyone's going to follow him. Now, in Zechariah 13 and 14, this is, again, deep into prophecy here in the book. Um, oh, let me see here where I want to start. I wrote down, I think, the wrong verses here because I'm in chapter 11. Um, Yeah, yeah, I, I was. Yeah, I'm looking at chapter uh, eleven, and in verse chapter eleven, verse four, uh, it, it's in the NIV. There's a title for that section called the two shepherds. So it's not in the text. It's just what they've titled it as. It says, "This is what the Lord my God says: pastured the flock, marked for slaughter." Okay, that's verse four of chapter eleven, and then verse seventeen. It says, uh, or verse 15, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd or a worthless shepherd, for I'm going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost. And then it goes on in verse 17, Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. And then again in chapter uh, 13, verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. So again, we're going back into Zechariah's time, uh, you know, around the year 519 uh, B.C. The exiles have returned. And they're talking, there's gonna, again, there's the contemporary, meaning it's, he's, he's speaking to the people of his day. There's a lesson there. But he's also speaking of something future. Uh, it, we can say eschatological, and that's interesting because eschatological in the year 519 would go into 30 AD when it took place, which, and yet eschatology is not finished. It's still yet in the future, which matches Peter's words, these are those days. These are the eschatological days in 30 AD. Eschatology, in a sense, began with the coming of Christ. Those were the final days. It's just that Christ has appeared, say, if it's at Christmas, if it's at John's baptist, you know, baptism, or when Jesus was born or at his baptism. It began then, and it's still, we're in the middle of it. Jesus came, did the work of the cross, went into heaven. There's a whole bunch of things that haven't been fulfilled yet, right? He's, I'll be back to finish them right now. You take this message to the world. This is the good news. I've paid, the new covenant is available. You can get in this new covenant because when I come back, he's going to be coming back in wrath. And so the eschatology, you know, when are the end times? I mean, I know what that means. We're waiting for the end times to begin. Actually, we're waiting for the signs of Jesus' return. But 
biblically, the end times began with the appearing of Christ. We are in those end times. And that's, that's how you can understand the prophet. So as we look at this right here, you know, we're going way too deep probably just for the word shepherd, but I just want you to see the weight of this when it says the great shepherd, the good shepherd. Chapter 11, verse 4. This is what the Lord my God says. Now he's speaking to Zechariah. Pasture the flock marked for slaughter. Now this would be right here, in the real sense, that would be a part of the flock that, okay, these are the ones going to slaughter now. Now and again, in the, in the agriculture or, sh- or farming world, you know, uh, that's why you raise sheep. You don't raise them as pets. Uh, again, this is hard, hard, hard for Western America to understand. Aren't they cute? Right. We use the wool and we eat the meat. It's like, what? Oh, bring them in the house. They're cold when you're cold. They're cold. When you're. It's like all that, you know, whatever. Uh, okay, if they're too cold, we'll eat them. Okay, but nonetheless, uh, it, you know, they're marked for slaughter. So in realistically, these, these are ready for harvest in the real shepherding world but in the analogy here these are those that in 70 a.d after 30 a.d they're marked for harvest they're marked for destruction or ultimately in the future there's going to be the antichrist these are those that are marked they've been marked because they've rejected christ so uh pasture the flock marked for slaughter their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I am rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them. For I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. So he's using that analogy. If Zechariah is actually out pasturing sheep, that's one thing. It's a sign, like Ezekiel gave signs, Jeremiah gave signs. Now Zechariah is pasturing the flock. What are you doing? These are just like the people when God says, okay, I'm done with these people. There's nothing that can say them. The shepherds are going to sell them and say, hey, we're rich. Their leaders are going to sell them and say we're rich. Now, this is typical fourth-generation ideology here. The leaders, the elite, are going to sell the sheep, sell the middle class for their advantage. Praise the Lord, we're rich. We're okay. What about these people you're in charge of? You're supposed to be shepherding them. Oh, we sold them. Now, there's a place where it's, it's fitting. That's what, what you raise sheep for. But when you're in a leadership position over people, the shepherd is an analogy. You've got one of two things you can do with these people. You can fleece the people, or you can shepherd the people to green pastures. And you're either using the sheep for your advantage to get rich, which, again, if you're a farmer, that's the appropriate thing to do. But if it's people, you should not be shepherding the people to sell them to be slaughtered. There's a difference between sheep and people, as we know. Well, okay. Most people understand that if, but nonetheless, we are living in crazy times. But Jesus, or the Lord is saying here to Zechariah, there's a time coming, well, I'm no longer going to have pity on the people, and I'm going to treat these people just like a shepherd who's selling them. And I'm going to give them bad leadership. Okay? Now, you can whine and groan, about your leadership you right here i mean just now make application forget uh contemporary 519 bc forget 30 a.d or the distant future whenever I think about 2022 and i was just watching a video this morning now i'm way off subject this is anywhere i'm going to go with this but just hanging right there i've got to pursue it i watched the video of an australia it's called sky news or something an australian news network and they're the the anchor two anchor people 
were just saying, what is wrong with America? There's like, you know, well, how many people we got here? They got, you know, three million or billion or whatever we got here. They, they, got, they got three million people there. And the best they can do for their top three leaders are, and then they named our top first, and then next would be there. And then the third one would step in place. And then they got the third one speaking last week, just like stumbling. You think number one gets confusing. There, number three was like, and they won't even, you never hear number two speak anymore. You don't even hear number two giggling. Uh, number, number three, it's like, and this, they say, this is, this is America. It's like, what is going on? Well, if you look at this, what is going on is judgment. When God is tired of a people, he gives them bad leaders. He gives them false shepherds, people, shepherds that are going to sell them for slaughter. And that's what's, being, that's what's happening right here. The middle class is being sold. They're being, we're being auctioned off, and the elite are going to be, they're, they're, there's things going on behind the wall. And it's like, how, do you know? That's what happens right here. That is what's taking place. Every time you see a culture fall, especially in the Bible, the middle class is driven into poverty. They're sold, auctioned off, and the elite get rich and escape, they think. And that is what God is saying right here. When he's ready for these people to be, and again, it's not like God, it's not like God is going to, here's the scary part. It's not like God is going to come to our rescue. Because the reason we're in this position is because God put us in this position because we've rejected the truth. As a culture, we've rejected the truth. It's like, warning, warning, we're further away. It's like, okay, it's over. Here's your bad shepherds. It's like, what is going on? And we're just being driven closer and closer and closer to slaughter. It's like, God, do you see this? Uh, yeah, I'm causing it. I'm sending you to your slaughter. Well, God would never do that. Well, he's saying I'm going to, right here, this is after the, Babylon, after, after the Assyrians. This is after the Babylonians have already done it. They've returned from Babylon. God's saying there's a day coming in the future where I'm going to have to do it again. And he did it in 70 AD. And there's a day coming in the future he's going to do it again to Jerusalem when the Antichrist comes. And those are just the highlights of Assyria, Babylon, uh, Rome, and the Antichrist with the Jewish people. Then you've got cultures throughout history around the nation that the same thing is happening to them. It's just not recorded in the scripture because they're not the people of God. So if you think about Tuesday night and how exciting it could be, we're going to bring our, get our nation back. You can vote the way you want. You can have the red, here's the red wave. Yeah, we had, we had a red wave in 2004. I remember preaching on it. It's like, we, we're going to make some changes. And I, I, I said, it's not just going to be a matter of getting you know, the conservatives in office. They're going to have to do something. They're going to have to step up and be righteous. And at that time, Cheney had everybody voting. All the Christians, all the churches, had swung over to be the conservative group. They, they played. It was their political play to play the churches. The churches, the churches swung the vote in 2004, if you remember that. And I, I mean, I've got, still got a CD I had out. It's online somewhere. And it's like, great, but if you don't change, if you just are playing politics and you're just interested in the economy and you're just interested in your own political base and, and power, this is nothing. You're, you're just on a little flip-flop, 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 and we're just flip-flopping to judgment. And so on Tuesday, if we vote, you know, say, you know, the red wave comes, if you're just switching parties, you're just going to just, you're, you've been sold to slaughter. It's over. The, the change has to come 
where we embrace, like we've said before, those five basic in- institutions. Individuals, now again, we're not talking about Christianizing the nation. God is not sending nations into captivity and into destruction because they don't go to church. That's another whole issue. That's going to come on the day of judgment. You're going to be sent to the lake of fire if you never joined the church. Not go to your local church on the corner, but join the body of Christ by faith in Jesus. That is called eternal salvation. Eternal salvation is going to be judged in the end times. It's going to be judged at the end of your life, if you would. But as a culture in society, you don't need to embrace Jesus Christ. You need to embrace reality in the five institutions. Individual responsibility, marriage, family, nationalism, and government in that nation to stabilize. And if you deconstruct responsibility of the individual, if you deconstruct marriage, we're going to rewrite marriage. You deconstruct family, there's no longer be families. If you deconstruct nationalism, we're going to break down the borders and everyone's going to just have this one big world. It's like, that, that's not possible. That's, that's the Tower of Babel, and the only that's out there is chaos. You can only have, now the nations can work together. Nationalism doesn't mean we're going to invade everybody. Nationalism, you've got a border, you've got a people with a government with the well-being of the people in mind. The government has to have the well-being of the people in mind. The minute the government becomes the elite, how can we prosper on the people Well, you've destroyed the institution of government. Just like a father, how can I sell my children into slavery? Well, that's not a real father. That's not a a husband sells his wife into slavery. It's like, well, that's not a real. You've deconstructed family. You've you've deconstructed uh, marriage. You've deconstructed government. And so that's what we're trying to do. Accepting Christ is another whole issue. We want a nation that established, Paul says, pray for peace so that you'll be able to minister the gospel we're, we're fighting on two different levels here we're fighting for the basic institutions of our our culture that god has established so that we've got peace that we've got we do not have chaos from there we can come over here and preach the gospel to the people say there's something bigger it's the eternal kingdom of god but if you're living in chaos here uh it's hard to have again God, the church can grow, like they talk about the church, fastest growing churches in Iran right now, they say. Because I, I don't know that for, for my own, myself. But because of all the chaos over there, people are coming to Christ. But nonetheless, what is being said here is the shepherd, right here, uh, Zechariah is told to pasture the, shot, the flock marked for slaughter. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I am rich. You can hear that in the politics today. Their own shepherds do not spare them. Your own leaders are not sparing you. Oh, well, help us, help us. It's happening because God has put you under judgment. For I will no longer have pity on the people of the land. Who said that? God is saying that I will no longer have pity. I'm going to give you worthless leaders. And they're going to sell you. They're going to profit on you. They're going to go away and say, declares Lord, uh, declares Lord, I will hand everyone over to his neighbor and his king. They will oppress the land and will not rescue them from their hands. So I pastured, Zechariah says, so I pastured the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. So within that flock, there were an oppressed group within that flock. Then I took two staffs and called one favor and the other union, and I pastured the flock in one month. I got rid of three shepherds. 
So this appears to be he's actually functioning, and he's overseeing this flock, and he fires this one, this one, and this one. Got rid of the, the, the poor shepherds of this particular actual flock in 519 of sheep. It's all a sign of what God is doing. Meaning, God can get rid of and fire three shepherds, false shepherds. He can, and he can rescue just like Zachariah is trying to deliver this flock from sh- slaughter and the people just, or the shepherd just gaining on them, God can do the same thing for a nation. The flock detested me, and I grew weary with them. So as he's trying to deliver them, the flock didn't like the fact that you got rid of these shepherds. We like them. They were abusing you. They were using you. It's like, we hate you for getting rid of them. It's like, oh, well, okay. Then, okay, you're, you're beyond hope. The flock detested me, and I grew weary with them and said, I will not be your shepherd, okay? Then I'm leaving. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. You need help. You're dying. I could help you, but you don't want my help, so die. You're perishing. You're going to be sold to slaughter. I can deliver you. You don't want to be delivered. Perish. This is now Zechariah acting out what God is saying to the people. I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Now, if you want to make that graphic, that's exactly what happened when Samaria fell in 722. That's what happened when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem in in uh, 583, 86. And that's what happened in 70 AD when Jerusalem fell. There's recordings in history of people eating other people. That's another whole story. So that, that can be figurative, but I know it's factual. Then I took my staff and called favor and broke it. Favor would be grace. So he took two staffs. He already says union and favor. I'm going to show you grace or favor, and I'm going to bring union to your nation. But you didn't want me to shepherd? Okay, so I'm breaking the staff of favor. I no longer have favor or grace for you. And broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. It was revoked on the day, and so the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. So now he's acting it out, but there's also, he's working with sheep, but he's also got people watching him, and they're realizing this prophet is acting out these roles as a shepherd. This is exactly what happened with Ezekiel, that he's acting stuff out, and they're watching, he's like, oh, oh, this is not Saturday Night Live. This is like a real prophecy that he's acting out. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. So now you see what Zechariah is acting out. He's acting out Jesus' ministry of 30 AD. I'm delivering you. I'm delivering you. You no longer, you detest me? You're going to crucify me? Okay, I break the covenant. The old covenant's over. You've crucified, you're crucifying me. Now, just give me what I'm worth. What am I worth? You're worth 30 pieces of silver. Okay, sell me for, and one of his disciples one of his elite disciples sold him for 30 pieces of silver. So he profited, and the, great, the shepherd went to his death. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they price me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And that is spookily, if that's a word, exactly what Judas did. He took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it back in the temple to the priest and says, I don't want this money. And they picked it up and they said, well, you know, it's blood money. I mean, it's, let's just, well, they went out and bought a field and they called the potter's field where then they buried people that didn't have a place to be buried. 
you know, the, 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 the homeless, per se. Then I broke my second staff called Union, breaking the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd. Now, put on the equipment of a foolish shepherd or a worthless shepherd, someone that's not equipped for the job. The first time he went out, he looked like a professional shepherd, and he was rejected. So now he goes out and looks like a guy that's, you know, not really knows what he's doing. He says, take the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I am going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost, seek the young, or heal the injured, or feed the healthy, but will eat their meat and of the choice sheep, tearing off their hooves. Meaning they'll take the choice meat, but even down to the very hooves, they'll take everything they could, even down, well, they can't use the hoof, but we can use the the, the flesh attached to it. Anything, they're going to strip the people naked, uh, talking about any material wealth they've got from the people. And then here's the little poem. Woe to the worthless shepherd who de- deserts the flock. May the sword strike his, his arm or his power and his right eye, intelligence. May his arm be completely withered or paralyzed and his right eye totally blinded. And that is that prophecy in chapter 11. Going over to chapter uh, 13, one more verse about the shepherd. Chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. This is almost like a repeating what we saw take place in Jesus' ministry because this is Jesus' ministry again. Because Jesus is the good shepherd. And now it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. This is God speaking. His shepherd is his son. He's going to take his sword and he's going to strike his son or his shepherd with the sword against the man who is close to me declares the lord almighty again that would be jesus is the father's son the son only does what he sees his father do they are close he's going to be struck against the man who is close to me declares the lord almighty strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered that's the verse quoted by mark in mark 14 when he sees it's like that's zacharias being fulfilled when jesus was taken the sheep scattered. Mark says that's exactly, we're in Zechariah right now. So we, got, we, know, we know within you know, reason that this at least was connected by Mark to Jesus' ministry. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. That would be Israel. Those that have rejected Jesus, okay, you've rejected my leader. It's exactly the repeating of what we read in chapter 11. I'm now going to turn my hand. And that was 30 AD. By 70 AD, they're destroyed. They've got a series of worthless leaders were brought in in fact the leadership the last few years were fighting with each other there was civil war before rome came there was civil war in jerusalem between the the warring parties and then rome came in and they still were fighting against themselves inside the city while rome was destroying the city i mean it's uh, it, it was and what was why is god doing that because they rejected the good shepherd here here's some worthless shepherds they'll just destroy you and they're all trying to gain power gain prestige gain wealth and i'll turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land declares the lord two-thirds will be struck down and perish yet one-third will be left now if you want to do the math on that that would mean 60 percent 70 percent of the people were destroyed and sold into captivity or something killed and they were multitudes killed but one-third were then preserved somewhere, maybe even in captivity, were taken captive to Rome and dispersed, and they became the seed of the remnant. Just like there are many people died in 586 B.C. in in Babylon's destruction, but many of them had been taken to captivity, and they were the ones that were brought back in 519. 
So this would be two-thirds to be struck down and a third to be left. This third I will bring into the fire. Now that fire would then be, could include the history up until the time of what we'd say the tribulation or the 70th week. But it would definitely be this third I'll bring into the tribulation. This third I'll bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. So throughout history, you can see that he's going to be removing people from Israel because they rejected the good shepherd. But he will take a third of them and bring them on into history through a fire, which could be history, but it could be the tribulation, of course. And at that point, they will call on his name. John chapter 10, go to John chapter 10. And I've got to believe that Jesus is aware of these verses when he speaks in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. He's speaking, he says, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber so there's the sheep pen and if a man is walking into the sheep pen through the gate jesus is also going to say he's the gate through jesus he's the right shepherd but if the shepherd's crawling in over the wall trying to get into the sheep without going through the gate uh he's not there to take care of the sheep he's there to rob or steal the man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep the watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out when he has brought them all out brought out all his own he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice now i have not studied this myself but i've heard it preached before so i'm going to say it but i can't say i've got you know documentation of this but when they, they take their sheep and put them all in a pen, all the different flocks, and then the, the sheep were familiar with their shepherd's voice. And they'd have a whistle, they'd have a voice, they'd have a call, they'd have a word. And they'd say that, and they'd she'd go, oh, that's our shepherd, and they would follow him out for the day for grazing. And the next shepherd would come in, and he's out a little whistle or something, and they go, that's our shepherd. Now, I don't, I've heard that preached. I have not seen that in effect or read that in a historical book. I heard a pastor preach that one time, which means, yeah. <laughs> they make stuff up a lot of times just because it preaches well if it preaches well use it and i don't know i'd like I, it makes it sounds cool it makes sense but i i need verification on that but nonetheless you can see that jesus is referring to it. they they know the shepherd's voice they know his call but they will never follow a stranger in fact they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice so the idea here is if jesus is your shepherd you will not follow the voice of a false shepherd. You go, that doesn't sound right. But if Jesus is not your shepherd and you do not know the voice of Jesus, the word of God, the spirit of God, you do not know the attitude of God, when the false shepherd, the antichrist, the false pastors show up, you'll be like, oh, 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 that's my, that's my man. And it's kind of like the reason you're following the crappy pastor is because you don't know the voice of the shepherd. Or the reason you're going to follow the antichrist is you don't know the true shepherd. And I mean, that would be some application. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Which then leads me to wonder, do I know what he was talking about? Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate. 
for the sheep. All who enter, all who ever came before me were thieves and robbers. If anyone came and says, I am the shepherd, they were not. But the sheep did not listen to them. The true sheep were waiting for me. I am the gate. Whoever enters through, now they notice he's the shepherd, he's also the gate. So again, Jesus is the good shepherd, Jesus is the good gate. I am the gate. Whoever, whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The false shepherd, the false entry will only get you in trouble. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now he goes, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. The good shepherd will lay down his life to benefit the sheep. The good shepherd will lay down his life so the sheep may prosper and have life. The false shepherd will lay down the sheep's life so he may have life and prosper. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay my life I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep. Now, this, again, this is an interesting. This, this must refer to Gentile nations. I have other sheep that are not, uh, uh, not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And that's, that now that near into the New Testament, taking the new covenant to all the other sheep, all the other nations. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But again, that right there, that verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. That that's that's, sounds like it's coming right out of this benediction that we're talking about. Because Jesus laid down his life, he was raised back to life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Of course they were, because some of them are listening to him and some of them are not. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others says, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So you can see his words are doing that very thing, drawing some people to him, driving some people away. And here we are. Time to quit, and we're still in the middle of the benediction. I'm going to read that benediction one more time and close. And now again, the, what we ended talking about there was the shepherd of the sheep. So chapter 13, verse 20 and 21 again. Now may the God of peace, his wrath has been removed through Christ, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Jesus shed his blood, so now he's been brought back from the dead. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the one. He's the one that's gone before us. He's the pioneer. By the blood of the eternal covenant, he's established an eternal covenant that will never be replaced. Equip you with everything good. Now that he's done all that, here's what's going to happen. God is going to now equip you with everything good so that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Because of that work, you're saved, you're in Christ, you're in the pen, you've moved into the truth. But now you're going to be sanctified. You're going to be conformed. You're going to be equipped, prepared to do the good things God's called you to do as part of his kingdom. 
pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. The only reason you can do this is the same reason you're, you're saved, is you're, you're in Christ, and now because you're in Christ, you're going to be equipped to help Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, we'll have to finish this next week. Isn't that something? All right. I'll pray and we're free to go. If you've got any questions, you can certainly ask them. Father, we do thank you again for your truth. We thank you for this opportunity to live at this time in history. We ask that we would follow you, that we would listen to your voice, that we would not follow the ways of the world, but we'd be conformed and transformed into your image. We do thank you again for your word, your spirit, and a chance to study your word. We pray for our nation that we may make wise decisions, that our, we would be given good leadership to lead us into the truth that the people of God would respond to embrace the institutions that you've established for all people, but also to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ to our nation and other nations that there may be eternal salvation. Father, we do again thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your time.